welcome to season two of Cheek by Jowl's podcast, Not True But Useful. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins. These episodes are going out into the world at a time when theatre is in suspended animation. So as an antidote, I'll be chatting to Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, the director-designer duo behind Cheek by Jowl. They're going to share life lessons that they've learned from staging great classic plays, which might help tide us through these strange times. We can't promise that any of these lessons will be true, but we hope you find them useful. Our play this week is The Changeling, a bloody Jacobean tragedy by Thomas Middleton and William Rowley. Before we hand over to Declan and Nick, here's a quick synopsis. The play takes place in the Spanish town of Alicante. It follows the story of Beatrice Joanna, a beautiful young noblewoman who is awaiting an arranged marriage with a man called Alonso. Unfortunately, she's fallen in love with another man, Alcimero. Beatrice Joanna's father has a servant called De Flores, who she knows is in love with her, even though she finds him repellent because he suffers from a terrible skin condition. She persuades him to murder Alonso so that she can marry Alcimero, manipulating him with a false promise to have sex with him if he agrees. De Flores assassinates Alonso and then blackmails Beatrice Joanna into giving him his promised reward. Beatrice Joanna and Alcimero are then free to marry. Alcimero is tipped off that Beatrice Joanna is no longer a virgin and decides to put her through a bizarre medical test to prove it one way or the other. She manages to pass this test by faking the correct responses and then arranges to put her virgin servant Diophanta in her place on the wedding night. She also admits to De Flores that she has, in fact, fallen in love with him. However, the plan goes wrong and De Flores and Beatrice Joanna end up killing Diophanta in order to cover their tracks. Alcimero finally discovers the truth behind their murderous spree and De Flores stabs himself and Beatrice Joanna so that they are finally united in death. Interwoven into this story is a second subplot, which takes place in Alicante's insane asylum. Two aristocrats, Antonio and Franciscus, have admitted themselves into the asylum, pretending to be mad in order to get access to the doctor's attractive wife, Isabella. Through a test in which she disguises herself as a patient, she proves that their love is fickle. When Antonio is killed, Antonio and Franciscus's disappearance from court means that they are initially assumed to be the murderers. They're finally let off the hook when Beatrice, Joanna and De Flores admit their guilt. The music you're hearing now was composed by Catherine Jays for Cheek by Jell's 2006 production. And now over to Declan and Nick. Hello Declan and Nick, are we all well charged with a cup of tea? We are. Yes. Hello Hello, Lucy. Lucy. Excellent. It's a really wild ride, this script. So I'd love to know, first of all, what was it that first drew you to The Changeling? Well, the thing I particularly love about it is what's often considered the problem in the play, which is the shift in the world between the aristocratic rulers and the madhouse. And people sometimes say, well, you can actually, you know, you can easily remove the subplot of the madhouse. I don't think the madhouse is a subplot at all. I think it's continually informing the main plot that they sing off each other. And it was the union of that that really excited me. And what about you, Nick? What was the magnetic in this play for you? Well, it is a wonderful play, but I mean, the central problem, as Declan's indicated, is is exactly that. It's there are two worlds which need to be distinct and yet happen on the same stage. 
and you need to be able to move very quickly from one to the other. Could you describe for us how you manage that as a designer? We use the door of the rehearsal room that we were playing in, which is at the Jarwood space, and it happened to work extremely well in rehearsal. It was like an air pod that you could go into and come out again. So actors could come into this space and come out in a different space. Um, so it's just the one door which seemed to be the key. So I decided to use that exact door. And essentially, the actors stayed on stage. And um, in an instant, they became mad people. And the desk that belonged to De Flores as a sort of security man stroke chauffeur figure became the desk that belonged to the madhouse supervisor. So that you got a direct parallel there. But essentially, the actors didn't really need to leave the stage. We also wanted to suggest in a light-handed way, a sort of modern world of surveillance, that there's just one camera that you can't really see what's happening in the, in, on, the, on the TV monitor, but you're aware that something's there. So there was this little flickering TV monitor that gave us little glimpses of what was going on behind that door, which reminds me very much of the last show that we talked about. We, we were talking about your production of The Tempest, where again, you had these tantalising doors with glimpses of what was going on on the other side that really fired up the audience's participation in the piece as creative imaginers of the space that you were making. But I also find this like extraordinarily inspiring because a common theme that we're coming up against a lot in this series of the podcast is the way that you feed on what's literally around you in your rehearsal period that we've talked about the place that you were staying in Paris essentially became your set for Ubu Hua and the way that you take what's on the streets around you and the world that you're walking through and allow it to feed into your rehearsal process. I find that amazing. Yes, and I think that happens politically and philosophically as well. You imbibe what you encounter on the streets in, in the way into the rehearsal room. In a way, you have to be open to things. And it also occurs to me this, this process of just keeping yourself open to the very basically creative things that are in front of you, like that door has a lot of potential, rather than fixing what's you're going to do before you start rehearsal on day one, which is the way that a lot of design processes necessarily have to work because of the way that rehearsal processes work in this country. That's right. I think one of the things of the hidden door or the hidden space or the other space, the space that you can't see, is that in order for the audience to be included, they have to be excluded. And that's something that we really do need to think about because there can't be any inclusion without exclusion. So the intimacy on stage is because there's a world that's being excluded outside. And it's being aware of that excluded outer world that gives us the feeling of being included with what's happening on the stage. But you can't have one without the other. So that the photographer cannot include everything in the shot. Um, it's about what's excluded. And that includes things. And that's the reason why the other space is really important. The space is always... Uh, binary. It's always here and the other place. The other thing that I found really fascinating about the way that you layered these two places on top of each other. So we had the supposedly sane world of the aristocratic court literally mm -hmm. on top of the madhouse. They were operating in exactly the same space with no mm -hmm. scene changes at all. Meant that there was no clear division between the two. Eventually, we actually saw the same things being enacted, being resonant between those two worlds, which I, I thought was a fascinating move that you actually started to blur the boundaries between the two of them. Oh, yes, that was very unconscious. And there would be a, a quick, sharp change between the two worlds, which makes you have to decide the boundaries yourself. Juxtaposition is very, very important. It's like editing in a film. You know, the juxtaposition, you get a lot of information from just bringing two events very close together in time.
And it seems to me that in that juxtaposition, light seemed to be a really important factor in this production. So you had the madhouse being very brightly lit in hospital lights and exactly the same space, the same stage space that represented the aristocratic court at Alicante being very dark with figures melting into blackness at the um, rear of the stage. And these figures sort of held in candlelight almost like a Caravaggio painting, uh, Mm -hmm. which is an artist who often comes up in our discussions. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit more about the importance of light and dark in the way that you think about the theatre and how that came to bear on this show? Well, we work a lot on it with Judith Greenwood, our, our lighting designer, and clearly we needed a very precise distinction between the world of the hospital and the rather mysterious dark world of the castle or the cathedral And that's how she lit upon this strong side lighting, essentially, for the aristocratic world and a more brighter, abrupt um, world of the hospital. Everything we see is determined by light. One can say there's no such thing as the dark, there's just an absence of light. And I used to think that. I'm not quite so sure now. I'm beginning to think that sort of dark and light are held in permanent binary with each other, that you actually need the two to see things. And also that in the darkness, there are things that the audience can imagine. So what I find so interesting about this idea is that it comes back to always a starting point of what you need. You need to create a distinction between the madhouse and the court and the cathedral. And so you hit upon this very simple and wonderful lighting solution. But then when you go back to what you need, you find solutions that are so simple that they hold massive amounts of metaphor and meaning and allow us as the audience to step in. So I took from it the idea that in the asylum where people's minds are supposedly clouded or not seeing clearly, everything's in a bright light. And that in the quarter Alicante, where people are supposedly sane and have clarity, they're actually in darkness. I read a huge amount into that lighting change, but the wonderful thing about it, it was, just, it was so not prescriptive. You weren't telling me to think that, and I'm sure that someone next to me would have thought something completely different. So I'm really inspired by these choices that you make that are essentially are about need, but open the door for us as the audience to step in with you and shape the play yes we do not give meaning um i'm not sure i believe in meaning full stop but um it's for the audiences to exercise their imaginations and the audiences in a way have to make the evening the audiences have to make their own entertainment and we give them the shovel and show where to dig but actually we're not um crossing t's and dotting i's and pre-digesting things we entertain adults And it's very, very important for me that we do entertain adults, that we're not making things simple, we're not teaching people, we're not preaching from one high, we're sharing something with somebody who's at our level, who's an adult, and we ask them if if they feel the same sort of things about it that we think we do. Another thing that seemed really important in this production was the operation of religion. So it opens in the middle of a cathedral where there's this highly erotically charged moment where these two lovers see themselves across a sea of people praying. And then after the interval, you opened it with this incredibly ritualistic Catholic wedding. So could you speak a little bit more, Declan, about how Catholic imagery permeates this production and actually your work in general? Yes. Well, I was brought up as a Catholic and that imagery has gone into my DNA and I'm what is normally described as a lapsed Catholic. But certainly the imagery and the way of thinking has imbued itself in me. Um, And sometimes I wish it hadn't, but it's very much altered how I see the world. And I'm not going to get rid of that. I can but those bits of it are also very, very useful. Um, it's a sort of system of living, really. It's a methodology of viewing the world. 
So that's just for me. And so inevitably, that imagery comes out. I think a lot of Catholic imagery, though, is quite universal in a way. I think when you want to express a ritual for grief, it naturally occurs to me to use my Catholic forebears and the funerals that I've been to with people saying the novena. It's the place where I understand ritual and the sacraments that help you in and out of life. Catholicism has proved itself to be very popular because it's it's there for the big moments. You know, it'll sacramentalize and give some consolation to um, people. Um, I think that's it's very useful. But of course, these plays are about little Protestant England looking at the gigantic threat of Catholic Europe, be it from the, the might of imperial Spain at its absolute height, or, or at the Vatican, and the fact that the government might be overthrown any moment by a Catholic plot. It's incredibly difficult for us to read the plays until we understand that it was that the terrorism in London at the time, and the dread of terrorism was absolutely enormous. And the other thing that's invisible in all of these plays, because the word was taboo, is Ireland, because Ireland was a potential Catholic invading point for England. And through this whole period, it was like sending kids to the Somme, the young men going over to fight this pretty unwinnable war in Ireland, um, and dying by the cartload. So nearly every family was touched by this very clear and present danger from Catholic Europe. So when you're, <laughs> when one's watching, I don't know, The Revenge of Tragedy or um, The Changeling or uh, nearly all of the plays, and Shakespeare very interestingly never does that propaganda. But when you're looking at many of these plays that nearly always set in a Mediterranean Catholic court, nearly always there's um, an evil um, cardinal or prelate of some sort motoring the script. And it is very much like take back control, you know. Its existence, the existence of England, was very much predicated on having this terrifying other. And it was like what communism did for America, except England was much less powerful than um, Catholic Europe. And so when you look at the plays, and there's Catholicism in the plays, you're thinking, hmm, this is actually, part of this is a propaganda exercise. Um, And that's interesting. So one of the extraordinary things about this production was that it was a young actor called Tom Hiddleston's first major casting out of drama school. What was it that you saw in Tom Hiddleston that drew you to him for this part? He has this extraordinary vitality. You know, actors can be talent, but there's this sort of quality of vitality that some people have and some people don't. Um, And like all important things, there are no words for it. But we, we, when we see it, we tend to recognise it. But yes, he was enormously talented, yeah, and, and it was wonderful. We did two plays with um, Tom. We did this and we did Cymbeline very much kind of finding a good part for Tom in it because we so much loved working with and him. And that's how you often go about choosing your next productions, right, is you choose it by collaborator often. Yeah. You see in people work that you would like to make around them. Yes, many of the people in Changing we'd worked with before, like David Collings, Toby Beer. Um, we hadn't worked with Olivia Williams yet. We knew Olivia, and I liked her very much, and um, we wanted to work together. It's very important for us to work with the same group of people, or, or at least a core of people that we've worked with before. And Will Keane went on to play Macbeth, um, of course. That was our first time to work with Will, and that was an extremely happy collaboration with Will. Who was playing De Flores in this production. Yes, we very much chose Macbeth to do with him and Anastasia Hilly, who'd been our Duchess of Malfi and our Isabella. And we we love sort of doing that to get inspired by somebody rather than thinking, you know, what play would I like to do? What sort of is my idea? What would be a good play to do now? This seems to be very connected actually to something that we talked about a lot in the first season, which is your advice to actors to find all their inspiration outside themselves from what's around them. And this seems to be very true of your creative process too, that what you choose to do and what you choose to make is about 
what's around you and what's outside you that you're taking in as part of a collaboration rather than generating an internal idea about what you're going to do next. In general, I think that's true, yes. So it's important for us to be open. Like It's very important our work is influenced by what we see on the streets. I imagine that de Flores' surveillance kit and sink and funny desk and light on it is very inspired by all the security we have to go through when we go backstage in theatres now. So those things get into us, and, and it's very important that we are open to those things. And it's important that we're porous, you know. And it's important for me and Nick that we are happy when the sun shines and we are depressed when, the, when it rains. You have, to, you have to let yourself be influenced by the outside world, otherwise, in a way, you're not alive. That's why COVID is such a terrible time for us, because, you know, we have to be infected by life in order to live. So another thing that's unusual about this particular script is the fact that it contains an enormous number of soliloquies where the actors turn out and talk to the audience. Can you describe more about what you think the contract is that's happening here, the connection that's being forged between the stage and the people watching? Yes, I often think that the the soliloquies are the most important thing. And it's very important to me that the actor is capable of speaking to the audience and isn't frightened of the audience. And we often light the audience so the actors can actually um, speak to the audience. Because I absolutely hate any concept of a fourth wall. I mean, unless you use a fourth wall, like we do at the beginning of Ubu, and then we destroy it. But the audience is, is party to the act. Even a little aside uh, means kind of implies them, you're on my side, I want you to be on my side. Are you on my side? Do, are you? How do you feel about all this? So we go on with them as we kind of do in real life. You know, we hear terrible things on the wireless every day and don't do much about it. You think, what's my part in this? It's very, very upsetting. Not that we can jump on stage and do anything, and nor would I advise anyone (laughs) to do it. I think we'd be terrible if we did. But it should make us feel uncomfortable when we're watching that. And these people are talking to us as if we're their friends. But the soliloquy is absolutely central. It's really important that the actor can speak to the audience and doesn't believe in some fourth wall is otherwise it's like the audience is coming to watch some kind of Fabergé egg you know some sort of perfected thing that's going to go on even if somebody dies in the audience the important thing about theatre is that you could alter the performance if you died in the middle of it if you die in the middle of a movie it's going to go on just as normal and that's a big difference between the two is the fact that my energy is part of this space and that my energy is part of this life An enormous theme in this play is that of self-delusion, of characters persuading themselves to see what they want to see. This particularly draws to mind the scene between Alcimero and Beatrice, which is a particularly weird virginity test scene in which he gives her a special potion to prove whether she's a virgin or not. And she has to fake the symptoms, which are ridiculous. She has to sort of gape, then sneeze, then giggle, and then cry in order. And she really struggles to do it convincingly. And she sort of hates the fact that she's having to do it. And you showed us very clearly that it was a deeply unconvincing performance that she was putting on. And that he was just thrilled to watch it because he wanted to believe what he was looking at. And that's just one moment of many in which self-delusion is at the forefront of of the scenes. Could you talk a little bit more about the importance of the idea of self-delusion in this production and in theatre in general for you? I think it's something in connection with all the great pieces of drama, actually. I think they're nearly all about self-delusion. We often think they're about people deluding other people, like Iago deluding um, Othello, but actually it's about Othello deluding himself, actually. Um, And 
I think our capacity to delude ourselves is really frightening, and I think that's one of the reasons why we need art. And it's very difficult to live with each other in a civilized way without um, repressing all sorts of violences and rages and envies and so on to enable us to get through the ordinary day. And when we go to theatre, we go to exercise those things. And very often the subject matter of theatre is people who are deluding themselves. And it's um, incredibly naive to think that, you know, when Hamlet comes to the front of the stage, that he's just telling us the truth. I mean, he's telling us probably what he wants to believe to be the truth. And we see people like Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are so clever, but they, they haven't ever owned up to the fact that they're killing this old man. Hamlet finds it very difficult to own up to the fact that he's trying to kill Claudius and doesn't really want to. But he's not. he doesn't live in this sort of revenge tragedy world. It's, it's weird. He's a student from Wittenberg with a scarf and, you know, instant coffee in his room. He, he, he's got to sort of go through this other strange world, and, and that's very much true of what happens in Changeling. And this takes us towards the ending of the play. Now, one of the things I love about every Cheek by Gel production is the last five seconds, which sounds like a very snarky review that my favourite thing about your productions are their endings. But actually, <laughs> <laughs> I think that you two are the masters of an extraordinary ending. You tend to serve us something right in the last final moments of a production that unsettles us or throws us off or flings a door to a huge idea open for us. And at the end of this production, there's a soliloquy in which Tom Hiddleston tells the audience that we all experience loss and grief. And during that time, the entire company rearranged themselves covered in blood, having gone through these awful things, they rearranged themselves back into the very beginning image that you started the whole play with. So this whole little ritual that was about grief at the end linked right back to this ritual at the beginning, which was about a budding love happening in this church. And there was this horrible cyclical moment where we saw everything kind of resetting. Could you talk a little bit more about how you shape endings and maybe also what are the important ingredients in a good ending or the ingredients of a really bad ending to a production? I suspect the answer is quite pragmatic, Lucy, in that it's really useful to have the people on stage for El Samiro at that point to talk about. And so that to end like that was kind of a decision which comes completely naturally. And it's great if you can read into it something beyond a way of finishing when we're asked why we've done things, we'll often come up with just very, very practical reasons why we've done things. But in fact, there's a whole world that's coming out as well through those practical things. Do you know, it's like, it's through what you do that things become manifest. But if you're thinking when you're doing something, I'm doing this in order to make something manifest, I don't think it's really going to work very well. And we'll talk about it in a very practical way. But the practical way we talk about things is, in fact, very misleading. But things come through your work that you can't really put into words. And that's very important because the whole point of making art is that you're sharing something with somebody that cannot be put into words. And it's good that you're asking us. It puts me to the test to answer the question. But at the time, as Nick says, yes, it seems completely practical because we want everybody on stage because you want him to talk about them. But enormous amounts of other things happen, which is like the terrible sadness that's barely mentioned in the play. This terrible oceanic cold sadness that's underneath the whole thing. And many of these matters things are done so that people avoid that and that comes out 
But we tell say, oh, because we did that because we thought we were going to show the monumental sadness that underlies all human action. If we did that, we wouldn't be able to do anything. I'd, be, I'd become completely tongue-tied. And Alcimira talks very interestingly at the end about grief and being alone. And I think it's that grief, like any intense emotion, tends to isolate us because we have to do it alone. And when we die, we hope we'll be someone that loves us holding our hand. But at the last moment, we're going to do it alone. But that's one of the things that he talks about at the end, about how lonely we are in our extreme emotion and how much we depend other people to stand with us at those moments. Those are colossal things that are there and immanent in the end of the play. But not for one second do Nick and I think this is what we're going to give voice to in the last moments of the play. It'll be, you know, trying to find a way to end the play, but that will be informed by other things. And I think the way that I direct is to talk about these worlds, these very big things to the actors, and then give maybe a very practical mise-en-scene with the understanding that that will cling through the invisible work and these things will come out through what they say without either me or the actors trying to control meaning. And this leads me to our inevitable last question of the episode, which is, what is your favourite line and or moment from this production? Nick, why don't we start with you? I'm afraid my favourite moment is a visual one, Lucy, which I never predicted, but the bloody hand on the glass door stays with me. Yeah, so in this extraordinary moment, De Flores and Beatrice are behind this door, and there's a moment which we're not sure is sex or murder or both happening at the same time. Or both, exactly. And this one bloody handprint trails down this, this glass door. And we're asked to imagine what's going on. And that's never planned. Nick and I see it. The expression we might use to each other in verbal communication is, that's good, yes, that's good. But not for one second do we think, oh, this is great because it confuses the region between love, sex, and death. I mean, we don't don't think about If we thought about that, we wouldn't be able to do anything, you know. And what about you, Declan? What was your favourite moment or line from this production? My favourite moment is Will Keane playing De Flores after he stabs Beatrice Joanna. He calls her familiarly Joanna. And he says, fare thee well, I'll not be far behind. So they're going to meet each other in death on the other side. Or in wherever it is they're going, they're going there together, you know. I'm going to throw in my favourite line from this production, and that is the moment. It's another De Flores and Beatrice Joanna moment. And... It's a moment where he stops in his tracks and he looks at the audience and he says, she called me fairly by my name. And it's the first moment where she speaks kindly to him. And it completely revolutionizes his life. And it's going to lead them down a terrible trail of destruction. But that one moment is so naked and stunning. You're absolutely right. It's very significant. In in England, for example, the culture is to avoid people's names and normally are called you. It's a very significant moment when somebody calls you by your name. I find that very moving, that moment, sometimes, if somebody calls me or Nick by our names. We get called a lot, Dieklan and Nick, in Russia. People use our names quite a lot, and less so here. Well, on that note, I'm going to call you both by your names and say thank you, Declan, and thank you, Nick, for another discussion over a cup of tea with a literally bloody good play. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Not True, But Useful. If you want to find out more about Declan and Nick's production of The Changeling, check out the link in the podcast notes, which takes you to the Cheek by Jowl archive. The theme music for this series was composed by Paddy Kinnean for Cheek by Jowl's production of The Winter's Tale, with additional music in this episode by Catherine Jays for The Changeling. 
Join us next week when we will be discussing the great Russian saga Boris Godunov. Until then, stay well. Stay well.